0: Welcome to SongCraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics
1: and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. SongCraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you want to help support Songcraft while accessing bonus content and rewards, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow.
1: You can also keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com, where you can check out our episode archive and sign up for our email list.
0: You're listening to Hold On, I'm Coming, a classic song recorded by Sam and Dave that was written and produced by Isaac Hayes and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, David Porter. An inductee to the Songwriters Hall of Fame who was named one of Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time, Porter will join us in a few moments to talk about his history at the legendary Stax Records and his remarkable song catalog that includes Soul Man, When Something Is Wrong With My Baby, I Thank You, your good thing is about to end, and many more.
2: Part one.
1: Well, Scott, here we are with another episode, and yet again we're breaking new ground into uncharted Songcraft territory with today's setup.
0: Yeah, that's right. You uh, normally, back in the pre-COVID-19 days, would come to my house and we would be sitting right next to each other in uh, the office here at Songcraft World Headquarters. And today, uh, we're not exactly together, but we are on the same property.
1: Yeah, we're on the same address. Um, I'm (laughs) in the garage where I belong. (laughs)
0: Right, <laughs> right. Uh, th- this is our solution now for uh, how we can actually do these things live rather than via phone. And, uh, um, so yeah, Paul is in my garage, um, on the other end of about 120 feet of microphone cable, yeah. uh, which is running out the garage through the yard into the house, uh, and here into the office. So, uh, we are in real time uh, with our voices, even if we can't uh, physically see one another but uh, hopefully it's uh it's it's not too uncomfortable out there for you. um
1: you know scott's been out here just sweating pulling miles of cable from one room to the other <laughs> uh cleaning this place up because this garage looks really good um, it
0: does it looks great but it's infested with spiders
1: all right then so we're gonna go <laughs> short today right i haven't seen a spider since i've come in yeah um, it's
0: i think we've got that problem under control
1: cool thank you for telling me after i've already been in here for a couple hours yeah uh, no
0: worries no worries
1: I'm, I'm cool with this, though. I mean, what, what's crazy about it is you, you mentioned that before, of course, we would have been in the same room, you know, sitting, you know, a few feet from each other. And now that just seems weird. Yeah,
0: it's, it's uncomfortable. Uh, I always felt a little awkward uh, <laughs> hanging out with you, but it's really weird now.
1: I mean, I can't watch a movie and see people like sitting next to each other or like going to a show or standing in a crowded subway. now I'm just like, ah,
0: yeah. Yeah. So we actually recorded, a, another interview earlier today. We took a little break. We went to lunch. We walked to, uh, Chipotle six feet apart from each other. One of us in the street and one of us, uh, on the sidewalk, we took turns one on the way there and one on the way back of who would take the risky position <laughs> of, of in the street. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we literally had not been, uh, in person with each other since, since early March. Yeah. Um, so it's good to, uh, uh, to have the opportunity to to actually get together again, um, but uh, but to do so safely. And man, I am sick of this whole COVID nineteen thing. Yes. But uh, I'll tell you what's not tired is COVID nineteen. So we have to stay vigilant. <laughs> we have to uh, to keep wearing our masks. We have to keep socially distancing. So this is kind of a. A big step for us to uh, to do this, but we're doing so in the most uh, careful way possible. And uh, look, we're with everybody out there who's uh, who's over it, but we can't be over it. We gotta stay uh, we gotta stay vigilant on this thing until we've got a vaccine. So so let's all keep fighting the good fight and trying to
1: adjust to this new reality. Yeah. Well, today we've got an exciting episode that we're bringing with with David Porter um legend of the stacks sound uh, and, and that whole era of music and you know this interview feels like you know he, he really takes you into the studio um, yeah. the the way he tells these stories and he talks about the the arrangements the way they worked them out when the artists were in the room right there really paints some great pictures of, of what it was like to be there Um, in the day making the records and it kind of got me thinking you know anytime I watch a documentary about you know Stax or or Motown or the Beatles anything from that kind of 60s era and there are shots of the studio I'm just I'll I'll pause it and I'll look you know I I want to look and see what the room looked like and what was the atmosphere and environment like Um, and it got me wondering if I had the chance to travel in time and I could pick one studio to go be at in in the, the midst of the heyday would I choose Stacks? Um, would I choose Abbey Road? Uh, would I choose Motown? I might even throw Fame uh, from Muscle Shoals in there, too. Like, uh, if, if, if yeah. I throw that at you, Scott, and you, you got one chance, you can either be in there watching the Beatles record at Abbey Road, you know, sit in the control room with, with George Martin, or you can be there with David Porter and Isaac Hayes, you know, watching the Stacks sessions unfold, or, or in there with, you know, Barry Gordy, at, at Motown Rick Hall at fame where, where would you be where, where would you click on that time machine
0: Well okay so I gotta I gotta know um, do I get in the time machine and do I go spend an afternoon there or is this a situation where I'm gonna go to say 1967 and and like hang around one of these studios and I'm gonna live there for like a year
1: I think you're gonna have to wait until lightning strikes the clock tower in the downtown area, <laughs> then you and, 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 the doc, doc Brown have to go out there. No, I, <laughs> I, I think that you just get to spend some time in the studio and then, and then pop back and come, come here and back to the pandemic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. In that case, and I actually, the reason I asked for clarification is because my answer is different, uh, hmm. depending on the two things. Uh, it's if, the same era. Well, but but hear me out on this. If I'm just going to Abbey Road in 1967 for a day, uh, yes. But if I'm going to choose between living in London or living in Memphis for a year, Memphis has way
1: better food. God, you're thinking way too much about this. <laughs> I'm talking hey, about... It's d- your question. <laughs> let me put some boundaries on the question then Uh, you you don't have to live there you don't have to have a job at the studio that's commensurate with your education level I'm just saying (laughs) (laughs) if you could be there and just be around the making of these records
0: okay I'm gonna I'm gonna um, say that um, Motown uh, doesn't seem very fun like Motown, the music yeah. that they created at Motown was amazing, but I feel like everyone was like really focused tight business a-
1: atmosphere. Yeah.
0: Like I feel like it was a, it was a factory. Like that was the whole thing was built on. So I don't feel like if I went to Motown, I'd like have a great time. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I'd have to say stacks or, uh, or Abbey road. Um, and you know, on the one hand you go, well, yeah, Abbey road. Cause you know, I'd get to meet John Lennon. Uh, but then Stacks, I get to meet Otis Redding, uh, you know. But I think, I I think I would maybe say Abbey Road just because there's something kind of mystical about that. Yeah. But uh, so if it was one day, I'd go Abbey Road. If it was a year, I actually would go Stacks, not because just the food in Memphis is better, but just because I feel like it was probably more fun.
1: Yeah, that's I mean that's a good point. I I think the the era that you chose to watch the Beatles would, would mean a lot too. I mean, in the early days, they're all going to be there together making records. And then if you're there, you know, around the later years, they're coming in one by one, they're in bad moods, you know, they're maybe going <laughs> right. to take breaks to argue about money in, in between, <laughs> right. you know, stuff they're doing about, you know, who's going to be manager, Alan Klein or, or Eastman. <laughs> right. um, yeah, I, I think that I might choose um, Stacks myself. Um Just because I feel like the energy, you know, with with the Beatles, you're talking about four guys in a room. Right. Um, With Stacks, you're talking about these horn sections, you know, like a a big band. It it sounds more like a party to me a little bit. It feels like the the whole vibe might be, you know, a little bit more the more the merrier. Right, Um, right. Or I feel like a, a Beatles session might have been a little bit more of a closed affair. I, and, and I guess maybe I'm, I'm getting into my own rules on this. Do they know you're there? <laughs> I don't know. Um, can you? Well, and, yeah. and I do feel like to that point, if you went to a Beatles session and
0: you were like, hey guys, this might be a cool idea, everybody in the room would be like,
1: uh,
0: get out. Yeah, unless uh, you're
1: in a relationship with John. <laughs> right. In which case, it's fine. Then, then
0: it's different. But yeah. uh, if you were at Stacks and you're like, hey guys, this could be a good idea, I feel like the mood there, they might be like, Hey, lay it on us. What's the idea? <laughs> like you might even get to like play tambourine on an Otis Redding record.
1: Right. Well, I, I love the fact and we, and we sort of hear this from from David that that he and Isaac were very hands on down yeah. there on on the floor working out arrangements. Um, and it, it did seem like it was just sort of like all hands on deck. Yeah, making those records. So yeah, you you might have gotten handed a shaker or something. Who knows? <laughs>
0: right, right, right. Well, and I think it's so important to look back too at the history of stacks because we are at a time uh, in our nation's history where we're having important conversations about um, race and about justice and. You know, when you look back at at stacks, I mean, you know, geez, like it, it wasn't perfect, but you had um, truly this situation where white and black musicians uh, were coming together in the segregated South in the 60s mm. to make music together. And um, David even kind of talks a bit about how you know entertainment was an opportunity for Black Americans to to make their voices heard, um, and the the ways that they were doing that at Stax, um, you know, might not really seem like that remarkable by today's standards, but man, by the standards of that time, it's almost unheard of yeah. um, to have. You know, a couple of white country music fans start a record label and then morph it into probably the greatest R&B and soul headquarters uh, in the history of this country, where you you truly did have people coming together thanks to the power of music. Um, You you made a comment to me recently about an artist being uh, the equivalent of Grubhub. That that the the songs that that artist sang that they didn't uh, write, you know, they just became the delivery delivery method, (laughs) right? Uh, And now Sam and Dave and all these stacks artists, I I wouldn't dismiss them in any way, nor would you, I know. uh, As as Grubhub, like they're fantastic artists. But man, if you don't have Isaac Hayes and David Porter uh, behind some of these artists, like those guys, they weren't the delivery system, but they were the creators of something revolutionary.
1: Yeah, David and Isaac were in the kitchen, which is funny because you think about Isaac becoming the chef. Uh, on, oh, on uh, South Park. South Park, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the stuff that, that those guys came out with, I mean, I, I it, when he started talking about when something is wrong with my baby, I I started to kind of like drift off thinking about listening to that song after the, the uh, interview was over. I was like, I just, I got to get. To my little Bluetooth speaker and pull that song up because I haven't heard it in a while. And that song is so emotional and so beautiful. Yeah. Man, such good stuff. It is. It's just uh, unbelievable. So we are
0: more than thrilled to present uh, this fantastic interview with a true living legend.
2: Part two.
0: Named one of Rolling Stone magazine's 100 greatest songwriters of all time, David Porter is best known for his songwriting partnership with Isaac Hayes that helped define the sound of Memphis's legendary Stax Records. As the first African-American staff songwriter at Stax, Porter, along with his partner, wrote and produced songs such as B.A.B.Y. for Carla Thomas, Your Good Thing is About to End, an R&B hit for Mabel John that later became a pop and R&B smash for Lou Rawls, and his own recording of Can't See You When I Want To. Hayes and Porter are best known, however, for their work with Sam and Dave, including such classic hits as You Don't Know Like I Know, You Got Me Hummin', Hold On, I'm Comin', which later became a country hit for Waylon Jennings and Jerry Reed, Soul Man, which became a hit a second time thanks to the Blues Brothers, I Thank You, which was later covered by ZZ Top, and When Something Is Wrong With My Baby, which was reimagined as a memorable duet between Otis Redding and Carla Thomas, a country hit for Sonny James, and an adult contemporary hit for Linda Ronstadt and Aaron Neville. The list of artists who've covered Porter's songs includes Aretha Franklin, Bruce Springsteen, William Bell, Melissa Etheridge, Bonnie Raitt, Garth Brooks, Etta James, Celine Dion, Wilson Pickett, George Benson, Dusty Springfield, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Staples Singers, Solomon Burke, James Brown, Eric Clapton, B.B. King, Tina Turner, Jackie Wilson, and more. His songs have been used as samples in countless recordings by artists such as Jay-Z, Eminem, Wu-Tang Clan, The Notorious B.I.G., Justin Bieber, Mariah Carey, and others. A giant among music legends, Porter was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2005. David, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Well, you know, we're always interested in where people grew up and and what music they were absorbing in their formative years. And there's really no more musical city than your hometown of Memphis. Uh, Talk a bit about what you were hearing as a kid that really first opened your ears and and got you thinking, hey, maybe, you know, I'll make music of my own one day.
3: Well, to go back to uh, that would be the late 40s and 50s, and so that was during the time when, when artists like, um, you know, Fats Domino, and Chuck Berry, and Bo Diddley, uh, doo-wop groups like the Drifters and the Platters, and, and then a little bit later, here comes the Jackie Wilsons, and the uh, stylists, I would say. Yeah. And so I was just impacted by the individuality of all of the people in the various genres. It really was a, 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 a period for me that, that gave me the opportunity to hear a lot of musical uh, influences potentially, but but also to to experience what was happening in America with black talents who were just getting their 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 music heard by the masses uh, to some extent not not. Not not substantial as it is today, but to some extent. But also hearing how their creative instincts were were just so amazing, and, you know. There are no new emotions. So to be able to think creatively about how to express a thought that some other record expressed, but you made the uniqueness of it happen in a special way for you was something that that really, really, I I I began to understand much later.
1: Yeah. You know, I've read that you and Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire grew up together and started making music in church together at a fairly young age. Talk about your friendship with him and what opportunities the church gave you both in terms of developing your talents. I was not born
3: in a hospital. I was born on a, on a street, a dead-end street uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. But on that dead-end street, next door to me, was the original drummer of the bar case. His name was Carl Cunningham. He was the one that that perished in the airplane crash with the Shredding hmm. years later. Right up the street, about five doors up the street, was Maurice White. And so, on, just on that street alone, we there was a lot of of future <laughs> musicality that that we none of us had an idea it would ultimately end up being. But but certainly we had the opportunity to go to a church that also was on that street. And that church was Rose Hill Baptist Church. So Maurice and I, come Sunday, uh, our, our folks would have us go to church. We didn't have a choice. And so we were like eight and nine years old, uh, being said to you, you, boys sing in the choir. <laughs> and so we didn't know what that meant. We just knew that we were told to sing in the choir. As, as youngsters, small, small kids, and you can imagine as small kids, you, you can't, your pitch is not going to stay there. You're floating all, all over the keys and all that kind of thing. But the, but the people in the church made us feel so wonderful that we were impacting them in a very, very considerable, impactful way until we thought that we really were special entertainers <laughs> uh, at a very, very young age. But it gave us a kind of comfort. And we were able to be comfortable and and a confidence that made us feel like this was something that was special. And ultimately it ended up being special for both of us.
0: You know, we've seen a number of your classic songs become hits on the country chart, including Sonny James' top 10 recording of When Something Is Wrong With My Baby in 1976. Uh, You got Waylon Jennings and Jerry Reed's top 20 duet of Hold On, I'm Coming in 1983. Uh, You got Blake Shelton and Jermaine Paul's duet of Soul Man in, in 2012. Obviously your classic songs lend themselves to more than just one genre. Uh, but I'm curious if country music um, had any influence at all on
3: you when you were growing up. I, I, I'd have to be honest and say that, that, that Black Church had the influence on me. Yeah. I, I, I respected uh, country, and, and, and you mentioned Sonny James in 76. Just the fact that the music was appreciated in that kind of way was special to me. Having said that, I heard some uh, amazing songs in country. That because I respect creativity and certainly uh, quality creativity, uh, it, it was always impactful to me when I would hear a great, great song. It didn't matter what genre it was, but yeah. to speak in terms of what really impacted on me, it, it's very, very clearly it was it was Black Church.
1: Hmm. Yeah. You know, before Stax Records was even called Stax, it was known as Satellite Records, and I understand that you were hanging out there pretty early on and even introduced Booker T. Jones to the owners when they were looking for a baritone sax player on an early Rufus and Carla Thomas song called Cause I Love You. What was it that drew you to become part of the atmosphere at Stax even before they were making hit records there?
3: Well, actually, when I came, I was working across the street at a grocery store. I was just finishing up... Again through high school, and here comes this this uh, tennis into this movie theater across the street. I didn't know what it was. I I decided to go over and take a look, and there was a, also a record shop that was at the front of the of the space, and there was no big sign on on the building saying it was Satellite Records. There was nothing there, and I didn't know. But I was as a curious kid, and also seeing that there was a record shop that was going to be there, I went in there and then find out that they had a, a recording uh, situation that they were setting up in there. And uh, I just, you know, asked ask questions. Well, not understanding that I, I I had no business barging in there, I was <laughs> trying to impress upon the lady who happened to be Estelle Axton, who was the AX of Stax Records, the sister of Jim Stewart, that I was a singer, <laughs> not not lacking in confidence by the way I was a singer and I wanted to have the opportunity <laughs> to to record and what she just uh, uh what they would give me a chance to take a listen to me so she was extremely nice to me and 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 even though they were into country music they had two artists at the time Charlie Hines and Nick Charles who was a disc jockey out of St. Louis that that's, that, that was their artist. and I was able to go back there to see a bit of that. Hmm. And it wasn't that they were just so comfortable with me doing that, they being Jim Stewart. Uh it was just that I was just so brazen and and, and <laughs> so uh comfortable in and barging in till I was able to to meet the guy who was working the music part of satellite and that happened to be a guy by the name of Chips Moman hmm. who later became an institution producer of some of the greatest music ever but uh, uh chips was working with the, with with the country artists i struck up a conversation by going, coming back and forth over there uh they had moved into a community that was transitioning from a white overly white community to a mixed and then ultimately a black community until they wanted to to, to you know to to be comfortable with with who was around so they were comfortable and in letting me come through there. And it wasn't like it was a big crowd. I was just a person that was just just there. And I ultimately ended up getting a chance to write a couple of songs with Chip's Moment. Uh, Jim Stewart started listening to me. Uh, then, then Estelle, I convinced her to, to convince him to let me do a, a demo so he could consider taking a look at me as an artist. This is before they did the transition over. And they said, "Okay, you can do that. Well, Jim Stewart didn't know the musicians to call or even the song that I would sing. uh, And and nor did I, when I was given the opportunity to to do it, I started thinking, "Okay, what song am I going to do and who can I call to help me with it, to play on it? So what I did was I got Booker T. Jones to play baritone horn on it. I got Andrew Love, who became a part of what is known as the Memphis Horns, to play sax on it. I got William Bell, who had a vocal group called The Del Rios to sing background on it, and I invented new lyrics to a song called Old Gray Mare. You can <laughs> imagine how awful that demo was, but it's the <laughs> truth. That was how I got my entree into satellite records, what ultimately became stacks So it was that the fact that Jim Stewart had met Booker T on that session that gave him the comfort when he decided to give a shot to Rufus Thomas, who was also confident in, in coming in and, and, and working on convincing them that they need to try another kind of music. Uh, he, he had a, a part of that session, uh, the guys that I bought in there for, to play on the demo for me. And that gave them a little bit of insight about me as a person that possibly could be a magnet for drawing credible talent to them until they were comfortable with me hanging there and being there until I ultimately convinced them to give me a staff position as the first staff songwriter for Stax Records.
0: Hmm. Wow. You know, most successful songwriters can, can point to people along the path of their development who encouraged them or, or guide them or, or cheered them on. Um, and as you say, Stax Records, you know, got its name from the, the first two letters of the last name of Jim Stewart, where we get the S-T, and then his sister Estelle Axton, where the, the A-X comes from, as you mentioned. Um, and Mrs. Axton, as, as many people know, uh, ran the record shop that you talked about that was out uh, in front of the studio. And uh, I understand that she had a lot to do with kind of encouraging your raw talent as a writer uh, early on. Tell us a bit about what role she played in, in sort of helping you hone your skills as you were coming up.
3: Well, when you consider the fact that that we're talking uh, early 60s, right? The world hadn't changed in the, in, in the right kind of way that it needed to for African-Americans at the time, so there was a lot of transition going on, and have a, a lady who was kind enough, encouraging enough to listen to a kid that, that she was just getting familiar with and play records free for him to to analyze because I had no money to buy him, I was still working at the grocery store across the street <laughs> and to play the records for me and just to to encourage me to say, well, you know, you just need to, if you're going to do this, you just need to really study what they're doing, and and so just tell me some things you want to listen to, and I, I I would play them for you. So her contribution to me was was more of, of a, a motivator, a person who gave me a comfort to ask for those kind of basic things that, that one would, would have to have in order to give themselves some insight about how they wanted to go about what they wanted to do, and that was a kid that didn't have money to buy the records or anything such as that, but... Get, was given access to all the music that I wanted to hear that was coming out, that was impacted in the marketplace and all of that so that I could understand what was going on around me in the music space and develop some kind of thought processes about how I would go about doing it. And mm. that was the the really, really tremendous gift that this lady gave to me at a time when the, when this country was not where it needed to be, but yeah. the, just a, Generosity of her time and and her assets uh, rather than selling it but letting a kid hear it and study it was an amazing, amazing gift to me. And Mm -hmm. I always treasured that. Uh, because that was so beautiful of her. And it ended up, because I was the first that she was able to do that, and that ended up I was getting some traction. There were other kids that then started coming in to the to record shop, and she was now beginning to, to know that as an example what, what her impact could be based on what she saw happening with me. She could also have that same kind of impact on other young kids that looked like me that would come into that record shop. And so she started doing that. So, but I give her the respect, and that's why I worked as a trust, national trustee officer in the Grammy organization many years later to work campaigning that she ultimately got the trustees award from the the Academy, the <laughs> Grammy organization.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow, that's great. Uh, before you formed uh, your songwriting partnership with Isaac Hayes, I, I believe you were writing with Chips Moman and Steve Cropper and other folks at Stax, including Rufus Thomas's son, Marvell, with whom you wrote The Life I Live which was released by Barbara Stevens on Satellite Records in October of 1961, and which I'm guessing was your first, you know, cut as a songwriter. Uh, Talk about the feeling of hearing a real artist on a real record label record one of your songs for the very first time.
3: Uh, I record, I had a record called Can't See You When I Want To uh, right before I got into Stacks, and it was on a label called Golden Eagle, I never saw a penny from it I understand he got some airplay and a little a bit of exposure so uh, that was a that was a a a a really really bad experience for me <laughs> but uh uh, that same song, I, I felt that I wanted to re-record that again if if Jim would, would give me a chance to be a recording artist. And the uh, attitude was no, because I'd made such a bad impression <laughs> with my demo. So my only entree into getting more into the mix of what what ultimately be going on there was from a songwriting perspective. And so he mm-hmm. had an interest in this artist by the name of Barbara Stevens. And And so what I saw was an opportunity for me to to get into that that scenario because he seemed to like Barbara Stevens so I approached uh, Rufus Thomas on Marvel there was not an ongoing working relationship in in the truest sense of the word but I did look look for someone that I wanted to collaborate with and Marvel was who I approached and then Jim allowed me to take the lead on getting the song recorded. And and that was the it was a quick write on the life I live, and that ended up being the reason the song was recorded. We were able to do it in the studio. I didn't realize at the time that we were producing the records because, you know, it was not a situation where we were getting credit for that. But but that was how the record happened. And that was my entree into getting my first uh, piece of work done. But also, it was it was an oming experience for me because uh, I I couldn't understand uh, how I did not understand what actually happened in that process. It happened so quickly. And so effortlessly until I thought that what happened? <laughs> the record came out so quick. <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting, interesting kind of thing for me. But it was certainly a confidence builder for, for me and for Marvel Thomas at the time
0: well as you say you were you know cutting records as an artist for various labels including Golden Eagle that you mentioned high records Savoy records using names uh, like little David and, and Kenny Kane um, before you yeah. then finally <laughs> yeah. did release your first record as an artist for Stax in January of 1965 the song you mentioned uh, can't see you when I want to um, and it right. was soon after that that, stuff really started to happen it was right around that time that you landed your first billboard charting single as a songwriter when Carla Thomas's recording of How Do You Quit Someone You Love became a top 40 R&B right. single This is a significant moment because this is when we see Isaac Hayes enter the picture who became, uh, your longtime songwriting partner. Talk about how you and and Isaac first started working together. And, you know, as you say, you had been sort of writing with, with other people on and off before then, but what was it that the two of you kind of each brought to the table in those early days that where you really knew it just clicked and Hey, this is, this is going to be the right combination.
3: Well, in high school, I thought I wanted to certainly be a singer, but also I wanted to be in the band. So I, I picked up the wrong instrument, which is a trumpet, and uh, bummed from friends of mine and, and thought that's what I wanted to do. But I couldn't effectively do that as a singer. And, and I certainly couldn't do that effectively writing songs. So I, I just put the trumpet down and felt that, OK, my, my route... To, to do what I wanted to do would would actually be more effective with, in a collaborative kind of sense. And I did not develop a choice for being a, a keyboard player, so I wanted someone that was effective in that because that's where I had my greater feel for from as 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 a songwriter. And so what I did see uh, with 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 uh, with with Marvel was that I, I needed to have someone who who I can relate to more easily, but also who was on the path to us establishing our own personal identity with it. Well, Isaac Hayes and I, we were at rival high schools. He went to Manassas High School in Memphis, Tennessee, and I went to Booker T. Washington High School in Memphis, Tennessee, and we both sang on a street called Beale Street in Memphis that was very, very popular, very, very famous as a music street at a place called the Palace Theater, and we would uh, be on talent shows there on Wednesday nights, and uh, that was where I would met Isaac. He had a doo-wop group called the Teen Tones, and I had a a doo-wop group <laughs> called the, the Marquettes. And so we would be singing competitively uh, at these talent shows on Wednesday nights. So we knew of each other, uh, but he didn't know all of what I did, and I didn't know all of, of, of what he did. So... When I'd gotten in at Stacks, like I said, as, as the first staff person there, I was looking for someone that I could collaborate in an ongoing way, but we also would have an opportunity to develop a creative flavor that was unique for us. And the motivation for that was the, the respect that we that I had really for what was happening with Motown, with Holland Dozier Holland. Just the fact of that, that creative teamwork that they had was amazing to me. And I just feel like that, that's, that's a plausible thought process for me to have. And then I also saw the beauty of, of Hal David and Bert Bacharach, which was another kind of creativity that I didn't have any false solutions that I could think creatively to do those kinds of, of songs, but I just had such great respect for the writing and, mm. and the creative instincts of those two together. So I knew that I wanted to develop a, a quality relationship in a creative sense with one person. And I felt that Isaac and I could do that. So I approached Isaac uh, b- before the caller session about let us get together and write something and he said, okay, well, let's, let's let's try it. Give it a shot. And then we talk, I, I wanted to have meetings with him about concept. And I talked to him at length about the concept of creating our own personal identity to our creative process so that if we had some success, we would have some kind of idea as to how to go back to that well, not to duplicate the same kind of patterns, but the uh, understanding of the overall concept of what made, the, made us effective. And hmm. so— I would, I, he and I were able to c- communicate and talk on that level to develop an understanding of what we were doing. So in the event that we had a, a level of success, we'd, ha- we'd have some sense of what gave us the greater opportunity to have more. And so that was a, a thought process that, that I only can, can say to this day I was only able to, to create that with one person, and that was with Isaac Hayes. Hmm. Wow.
1: Well, it's impossible to talk about Hayes and Porter without talking about Sam and Dave. Um, In much the same way that the Supremes became kind of the conduit for the vision of Holland Dozier Holland at Motown, Sam and Dave became that for you and Isaac at Stax. Um, After a couple of non-charting singles, you landed your first top 10 R&B hit and first appearance on the Billboard Pop Chart with the duo's recording of You Don't Know Like I Know. (laughs) Energy and joy in that record, and in most of the Sam and Dave recordings. It's so immediate. And I've read that you guys would actually produce from right there on the studio floor rather than from the control room, which is pretty unconventional. And so not only were you writing the songs, but you were bringing them to life in the studio. I'd love to hear more about your recording process.
3: Well, uh, one, Isaac and I would work on the concepts of songs when there was no one in the studios. And so we would do that, and we would we would think in terms of what we were trying to accomplish with the creative process for that particular artist, and we were able to crystallize that with, with, with Sam and Dave. And so when we did that, we knew, both of us knew, that we would have to stay on top of every aspect of the creative process in order to get what we felt would be an identity and a uniqueness for them. So... Uh, Isaac would, would work on the horn patterns on the floor. I would work on the vocals of the artist, and I would simply sit, sit there and teach them each the parts, and then when we would record the songs, they would be on one side of the microphone, I would be on the other side of the microphone, directing them like you're directing a choir. And and with the, the hands up for the, for the high notes, the, the, the back off for the low, the inserts on the ad-libs, all of those kind of things were calculated, and they were just amazing at their gifts to be able to not only to understand that but but not also not to lose their own personal identity in what they were doing. And so that process became the signature process that Isaac and I use on every artist we work with. Be it Johnny Taylor or or the Soul Children or or whoever, it didn't it did not matter because uh Sam and Dave we were able to to make a process in an ongoing way work up the arrangements before we'd put them on the mic. Rehearse with them, singing the song at the piano, give them an understanding of what those processes would be, and then get on on the microphone and bring out the energy that's necessary to make the make the song sizzle. And and that's that was really what that that process those processes were. And because the patterns, the musical patterns were, were, were thought out and given to the musicians from from Jump Street. The individuality of Sam and Dave sound like a Sam and Dave record. By the same token, if, if, if Cropper and, and Al Jackson and Booker or whoever was, Duck, were working on another artist, that individuality was able to be manifested in what they were doing with that particular artist as well. So, but we, we started that effectively with what we were doing with Sam and Dave. Well, in 1966
0: alone, I believe you and Isaac had about 10 songs enter the charts, which is just incredible. Those include Johnny Taylor's I Had a Dream and I Gotta Love Somebody's Baby, Carla Thomas's Let Me Be Good to You, Ruby Johnson's I Run Your Hurt Away, and, and several others. But the biggest by far to hit the charts that year was Sam and Dave's classic Hold On, I'm Coming. And I've heard that the title of that song was born out of a moment of impatience. I'd love to hear the the genesis of that song.
3: Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Stack Studios was actually an old converted movie theater. And back in those days, the movie theaters were you walk in the front door, you walk down a slope floor, you go set in front of the screen, and you 're looking up at the screen. Well as soon as you walk in the front door, there was the restrooms at the back of the space so the, that it wouldn't light would not interfere with with the, with the sight patterns of people looking at the screen and so we had a restroom right at the door as soon as you walked in it well we were using that that room not only for a restroom but also for an echo chamber as well and so As I mentioned, Isaac and I worked very late at night until early mornings writing songs. And so this particular night, we were trying to come up with a follow-up to You Don't Know Like I Know and trying to be sure that we we had something that could be really, really special because we were really feeling good about the initial success on them. And so we were looking for the right idea. So (laughs) we were working toward that end, but nothing was happening, so I had to go to the restroom. So I went to the restroom, and so uh, Isaac now is rushing me to come out. And uh, he's screaming at me, and I screamed back. Hold on, man, I'm coming. And I said, "Oh my goodness, that's it." And so I came out of the restroom. I says, "And we had code names for each other. Uh, his name was Hobosack, and my name was Robesack." And I said, <laughs> uh, "Sack, I I got us. I got it." He says, "What is?" It? I said, "Hold on, I'm coming." I said, "Think in terms of Superman rescuing somebody and flying through the air and and that kind of thing. That's that's the energy of this idea." And he said, "Oh yeah, I like the thought of that." He said, "Man, you know what? With that in mind, I got a horn riff that I put down a, a, a couple weeks ago. Let's let me go in the control room. Let me play that for you." So he played the horn riff. It was da 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 da. We talked because it came out of the Superman conversation that we had had. So we had the horn riff. So we sat down at the piano. We knew directionally where it was going to go. And without having any set lyric at all, but having the concept of what the horns were going to do, the concept of where the idea energy was, was going to come from, in 20 minutes we wrote, Hold On, I'm Coming. I did, did not wow. stop. I started wow. singing. The lyrics just came right on out the whole nine yards.
1: That's amazing. These are my favorite kinds of songwriting stories. <laughs> <laughs>
3: the bridge of the song, if you if you look at the bridge of the song, the pattern of the bridge goes to a chord progression that's totally unique, and a separate kind of bridge progression that you would ordinarily hear. That's with Superman flying in the air and changing the pattern in his flight wow that that's what that was if you if you look at the, listen to hold on I'm coming and listen to the bridge of that you 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 and, and understand conceptually how we were thinking at that particular time you'd see that's that's what that was. That also gave us a signature that we ultimately use on most records on Sam and Dave. All of the bridges on the, that we would use on Sam and Dave had a pattern, a chordal pattern, that took you to another kind of space rather than the normal kind of transgressions to bridges. And so Soul Man, the same thing. I mean, just I thank you the same thing. It, 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 was, it was just it all came out of the motivation and the success that happened out of Hold on I'm Coming. Wow, I love that.
1: And just imagine that you hadn't drank that much coffee that day and you didn't have to go to the bathroom. This might have never happened. (laughs) Uh, I I think about that
3: often. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah.
1: But before we uh, you know jump back into Sam and Dave because there's there's plenty to talk about there, uh, I also want to ask you about a couple more of those hits that just kept raining down on you in 1966. Uh, your good thing is about to end, which was a top ten hit for Mabel John that went on to be a big pop hit for Lou Rawls a few years later, and B A B Y, an R and B and pop hit for Carla Thomas. Are there any memories about writing and recording those classics that stand out in your mind? Well, you know we we were
3: trying to Mabel John had a tone that was low. But sensuous and tender and and so we were trying to come up with something that would be complimentary of her but would but, but would would stretch her only in a direction that 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 she was most comfortable in, and so we were trying to come up with ideas to do that, a couple of those ideas was taking up another man's place, which was a good we thought was a good song, but also your good thing is about to come to an end. So it, the, 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 the thought that we used with the song was here is Mabel, a tender kind of person, personality that way, uh, it, so she's not a screamer, she's not one of those kind of persons. So we had to come up with a lyrical approach that was comfortable for her to express, yes, relatable in such a way to, to females. And so that's why the, the lyric lines of, I don't have to beg you to hold me because somebody else will. You don't have to love me when I need it because somebody else will. I mean, a, a, a person who is, is is with that kind of temperament possibly would communicate that way as they're getting ready to tell a guy to get out of their life. And so we were, <laughs> we were trying to do that in a creative sense for Mabel, and we just felt like— uh, we, we, we maximized the opportunity in a creative way for her. But we also felt that that song could be re- re-recorded by someone else and, and do just as well, and we had no idea that Lou would do it, but we were talking the song up because we felt that it could be a, a major, major record, and here comes Lou Rawls, who decides to record it, and it ended up being a gold record for him and, and a major, major record.
2: You have all the love I've got, baby
3: On the B.A.B.Y. song of, of Carla Thomas, Isaac and I was trying desperately to get the right kind of mood set that we thought we had uh, for, the, for, the, for the song, but when we got into the studio and was attempting to do it, uh, we were not able to to find that 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 strand that gave us the comfort that we had where the song needed to be, and there were only a couple of songs that we recorded on collar that we fa- found that difficulty with. B A B Y was one of those, and the thing that that made that song come come alive and come through for us uh, was also on that session date was Booker T. Jones, and and Booker very seldom recorded with Isaac and I. On, on session days for, for, for Sam and Dave or for Carla or for anyone like that. And so uh, he did it on a few, but, but, but not often. So here we are, were stuck up trying to find the right kind of, uh, of, of, direct, of pattern that we thought was correct, but, but we both said, no, that's not it. Booker said, hey, I, I got an idea. You want, you want to hear here's something I got for it? And so the base pattern on B-A-B-Y was a pattern that that Booker T. Jones gave to us for that song. And the rest is history because we used Carla's younger sister to sing background on the song and the tenderness and the attitude that really made the song do what it needed to do was easy from there on.
2: And I can't stop loving
0: Well, the hits kept coming with Sam and Dave, including uh, I said I wasn't going to tell nobody and you got me humming. But one of the absolute classics of your catalog is the beautiful soul ballad When Something Is Wrong With My Baby.
2: When something is wrong with my baby
3: Well, <laughs> uh, that that's a story that that I don't. I usually, just to be honest, uh, decorate a little bit away from what the actual actual is, uh, because I was I was uh, in a relationship, and, and uh, uh, you know just it just it was a thing about where I was thinking in terms of what is the ultimate kind of relationship that one should aspire to want to have. And so that song came about out of a fantasy of what the real, real, magnificent love relationship would ultimately be in in a truly real sense. And so, Mm. uh, you know, just, just thinking, I was trying desperately to come up with a hook for, for for an idea for that. And just thinking of that, one night after after being asleep, uh, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, and sometimes I would do this. It happened more than on one occasion. I heard uh, something inside of my mindset in my dream that said, when something is wrong with my baby, something is wrong with me. I always kept a legapad pad up under the bed. <laughs> Sounds silly, but it's true. I, and I, I I took the Liga pad out, half sleep, wrote the title out, put the legal pad down, went back to sleep. Didn't even think about it other than I woke up, and that's what was in the front of my mind. I wrote it down. And I've, I've, I've always thought that when you get those ideas, you better write them down because they go through you. They don't stay with you. And so mm, I wrote, yeah. the, wrote that down. And the next day, got up, and I looked at the pad and saw that. And I called Isaac and said, hey, man, I, I got this idea that for for a ballad for Sam and Dave I think could be the one. He says what I said when something is wrong with my baby, something is he 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 just he starts screaming. Man, I love that. <laughs> so I said, can we get in the studio to write it? Because we, we we at the time we would write, but then when we would go home and whatever, we'd be both of us wanted to be away from music so we could think fresh the next day. So we didn't have a keyboard to work on. So Isaac called one of his buddies up and and, and Sidney Kirk and asked if he could go over to his house to work on a song. Sydney allowed us to come to his house. Now this is strange to you because when you consider that these are guys that are writing but but when they would leave the studio, the keyboards and things were not at home. But huh. but that's that's what it was back back in those times. So yeah. we went to someone's house, Sydney's house. And 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 that's another one of those quick quick messages that came right on out when something is wrong with my baby was created. When we got to the studio and we did the head arrangement on the floor. Uh, all of the energy that we needed to have after teaching Sam and Dave the song, giving the, the verses to each of them like like wanted to do, uh, it, all of that came so natural. The only thing that, 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 that was ended up being a little bit different was that the end of the song, where the the chordal buildup, creating the dynamics, the stair-step buildup on it, uh, was something that was was thought about. During the course of that session, everything else we we already had. We already had the for, pre- for your precious love, a peggio keyboard treatment that Isaac was playing on the piano. There, uh, it, it was it was all thought out uh, in such a way that that we knew what we want, wanted to do with the song. The hmm. only part that was different yeah. was that part of it. Yeah, but we that's, that's incredible. That, I'm glad you mentioned that song. That's one of the most special songs of 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 both of our careers, Isaac and mine.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, Otis Redding and Carla Thomas also recorded a great duet of When Something Is Wrong With My Baby uh, on the King and Queen album. Yeah. You know, if you're going to talk about Stax Records, you have to talk about Otis Redding. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to mention one song uh, of his called fa, 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 Sad Song, and I had, uh, you know, some of our listeners may not know that song, and uh, what kind of title is that? And my understanding is that was Otis uh, kind of w- presenting a, a saxophone line, you know, this is how it should go, Fa, 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 Fa. But I've also heard that your voice is actually featured uh, on that song. Is that true? I am singing the harmony with Otis on, on
3: Fe-fe-fe-fe-fe. That is definitely wow. me. That's and that, awesome. that, to me, <laughs> that to me, for Otis, uh, one, Otis talked often to me about songs and, and about lyrical approaches and everything. He had, a great, he had a great appreciation for that. But that was one of those things where he wanted me to, to sing on a session with him. And uh, he did the head arrangement on the floor when right before he spe- explained to me exactly what he, what he wanted me to do, he said, I want you to sing harmony on the lick. So, so I said, well, what lick? He says, well, you'll, you'll hear it when I, when I sing. So he, he went, Otis was on the floor doing the full arrangement with the band on the floor. Now, now we hadn't gotten to the microphone. He hadn't sang anything yet. And, and mm. so he did the full arrangement on the floor with the, with, with the cats, with the musicians. Now he's ready to sing the song. So he says, fat, 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 fat. he said he said, that's what you're gonna sing him do with me. So something, I'm saying, what the hell? So <laughs> so so I get on the microphone. The reason if you notice my voice is very, very faint on it because I'm not a hundred percent sure how he's going to do it. I know when he's going to do it because I know where the patterns are, but I don't know how he's going to do it because Otis Creativity Juices, he's one of the most amazing talents I've ever seen before in my life. And he does such amazing stuff. So I wanted to be sure that I didn't blow the track. I didn't blow the session because once the count off, one, two, three, four, if you mess it up, you got to do it all over again. So I didn't want to be the reason for a mess up because he's so brilliant in what he would do with the songs. So I didn't get all the way up into the mic on that song. But clearly you can hear me singing the harmony with him. And the reason that I didn't get all the way up like I, I ordinarily would do singing on a song is because I wasn't exactly sure of what my friend was gonna do <laughs> when when he was singing those parts. <laughs>
1: put Otis up at the mic, it's kind of like just lighten that fuse and you kind of just, you know, either get out of the way or just see what he's going to do. It seems like one of the most explosive talents that, that has ever stood behind a microphone.
3: Otis Redding was the whole reason that we as a company d- developed the, the astute abilities to take total confidence in the head arrangements from the floor. Because Otis Redding would hear these songs in his head and then walk around the room and hum parts to folk in the room. And then when they would play it, it would mesh together just like a puzzle. He was amazing with that. Very seldom would someone have to create a horn pattern for what is ready. Now, when it was done, uh, the only person that, that I would know, and maybe there was some other instances, but I'm not aware of it, but the only person that I would know that he would have total confidence in was Isaac. On the introduction of trial of tenderness, that's that's Isaac Hayes' creativity there. But other than that, Otis would just come up with these amazing parts for horns. Now he allowed Isaac and I to do a couple of songs, "I'm Sick Y'all," and a couple others was songs that, that Isaac and I wrote for him. But, but by and large, he would write all of his songs, and and he would come up with the, these arrangements him, himself. Uh, he and he and Cropper worked well together, but Otis heard the arrangements in such a way that was amazing.
0: You know, there seems to have been a real collaborative spirit during the golden era at Stax in terms of people just pitching in, you know, fostering this kind of family atmosphere during that time. Uh, Booker T. Jones wrote in his autobiography that you were even there in the studio whispering the lyrics of Born Under a Bad Sign to Albert King as he recorded that now classic song. Um, in what ways do you think being a part of that family, a part of that atmosphere, how did that um, foster your songwriting and and production talents in a way that might have been different if you'd been with a different company or a different environment?
3: Well, well clearly, we had a, a kind of camaraderie. We, we were called the big six. That was Steve Cropper, Isaac Hayes, Al Jackson Jr., Booker T. Jones, David Porter, and duck done, and so there was a a a bun inside of the studio that was unbreakable. And if someone was creating something and wanted help with it or, or got stuck with it, uh, someone was there. And that's, that that the 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 song that I mentioned, B A B Y, was a perfect example of that. On on when you listen to Knock on Wood, the horn parts on Knock on Woods were created by by Isaac Hayes. The intro, the ensemble part in the middle of the song, all of the horn parts on Knock on Wood was created by Isaac Hayes. The background, that's me, William Bell, and a young man by the name of Quincy Billups singing background. I create the backgrounds for, for, for Knock on Wood, for, for that record. For, and the song was written by Steve and Eddie Floyd. Right. So we had that kind of, of willingness to contribute. And, and that's, that not, that's not only what we did. Isaac and I did. Everybody did that on everything, whatever wh- where there was a need and a willingness to, 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 to be sure that something did what it needed to do. The other person was willing to give their all to, to cause that to happen. The greatest contributor uh, for all of what we were doing during that time uh, has to be given to a guy by the name of Al Jackson Jr., who was the drummer, on, on all of the records, so the individuality from song to song was, really came out of the signature patterns that Al Jackson would, would do in the salties of how he would do it, and you could tell that the record sound like the artist rather than uh, just a replication of a, of a beat on a record. And so he, he was just amazing with that. But, but there was also a willingness for everybody to give to everybody. And that that's that's the thing that I, I, I agree with you. Were it not at Stacks Records uh, for, for, for all of us, I don't know that we would have had uh, all of the success that that, that we had. Uh, I'm not saying that we couldn't have, but it, it certainly was a, a credit to the willingness of others to, to contribute in a meaningful way to help whatever you need to do happen.
1: Let's talk about Soul Man, which was a massive pop and R&B hit for Sam and Dave in 1967, one of the absolute just you know, rocket ship hits of your career. How did that song come about? Well, I, you know, Isaac and I always wanted to
3: top what we had just done, and so we would be trying to come up with ideas. And uh, Isaac had this title that 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 he felt we ought to write on. And uh, I said, "What is?" It? He says, "Soul man." And I said, uh, "Soul man." He says. Yeah, I mean, just, just he, he, he saw it or, or heard it in Detroit for something was going on, something relative to race, situation, civil rights, or something was going on up that way. And he heard that as a title. And so we talked about uh, a, a way to, to make that title have some unique and special thing happening with it. Here, here was an opportunity to do that with an idea that talked about education that talked about Ama Beginnings, that talked about all of the special things that makes you a special man, a soul man. And and so it was, we felt, a way to create a motivational thing for people, certainly for black people at the time, but also for any people any person who, who wanted to feel that, that they had something inside of them that gave them the wherewithal to go to the next level. There are steps that you could take. You can prepare your, yourself intellectually. You can make yourself uh, just willing to go through whatever process, I'm a beginnings, and all those kinds of things. So we were thinking in terms of how to make that idea more than just a, a song talking about a, a hip guy. We, was talking, we were trying to make it talking about a special guy. in the rhythm essences of that was taking it we wanted to take it all the way back to the Mississippi steel guitar beginnings that, that, that we we thought in terms of uh, from from coming out of Mississippi with the steel guitar thing. So so you know we, we, we were looking at ways to create the uniqueness inside of the idea from the message perspective, also from the rhythm of it. And there was a there was a a, a little beat that Al Jackson put on the track that was that we called it sanctified. <laughs> And so we, we just felt that we had created, I don't want to say a masterpiece, but I would say that, that, that I, went to, I went to Jim Stewart and said, I bet you that this will be a number one record. So he, we, we, this is before the record was released. And he says, bet me what? I said, I bet you $20,000 it'll be a number one record. He said, sure, yeah. I said, shake on it. So Jim Stewart shook my hand <laughs> that I said it would be a number one pop record, man $20,000. Now, you have to understand what year that was. 67, 68, $20,000 was a lot of money. And so yeah. <laughs> he shook my hand. Soul Man hit number one for one week. The Beatles didn't <laughs> let it stay, stay long. Top 10 <laughs> record on Billboard, number one on Cashbox, and Jim Stewart lost $20,000. So, so, But <laughs> I, I, I just felt like that, that song, Isaac and I both felt that we had created a template for something that was special and unique. There's a a line
0: in Soul Man that has always perplexed me, and now that I have a captive audience with the man who wrote it, I can I can finally solve this mystery. Uh, there's the lyric that says, "I was educated at Woodstock," but this was two years before the famous music festival, and yes. I can't imagine yes. that the the town of Woodstock meant much at the time. What what is
3: that line referring to? Woodstock is a rural high, was a rural high school in 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 the county part of Shelby County. That's what Woodstock—Woodstock Woodstock was a high school huh. a, a near where, where, where Justin Timberlake came from, from Millington, Tennessee. I'd never seen Woodstock, but I knew it was a school called Woodstock. And so I put that. I was educated at Woodstock. which symbolizes the beginning when I said, I'm coming to you on a dirt road. That's the i a beginning part of that. And so only someone who knew what that meant at the time would know what that meant. And so no one— put very much attention on, on the Woodstock phrase until here comes a music festival and here come Belushi and Aykroyd and, they, and they're singing a song and people equate it to that. But it had everything to do with the context that the song was created in. I'm a beginning dirt road, getting an education, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. All of that speaks in terms of coming from the, 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 the soil, so to speak, to build yeah. yourself up to be all the man you needed to be in, on whatever level you needed
1: to. Wow. That's some great info. That's the kind of stuff we like getting here at Songcraft. I feel like that's a hot take on that song right there.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: It's the truth. (laughs) Well, Sam and Dave's last big hit was I Thank You, which of course became a hit for the second time when ZZ Top recorded it several years later. Uh, And they still hit the charts with songs like Everybody's Got to Believe in Somebody and Soul Sister, Brown Sugar, and the top 20 R&B hit Born Again. But they, they never quite recaptured the commercial success that they had had previously. Do you have any thoughts about why the tide kind of turned for Sam and Dave when it did? Well, I, 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 I
3: can only just take a I guess, but I don't, you know, uh, the guys were touring so much, doing so much on the road and all of that, and it was becoming challenging for for them to get with us and possibly for them to get together themselves because they were uh, on the road so much. And so we did not have the luxury of being able to to grow as the success of the artist grew by getting together to 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 think and plot more thoroughly about directionally where we were going to go from there, and so consequently the creative process suffered a little bit because of it. The ideas were not awful ideas, I but they were not what they could have been. But to, you mentioned, I thank you. The reason that I think You was recorded was because they had had so much success. And we Isaac and I was thinking in terms of how can sh- their shows be impactful in a meaningful way, but also show appreciation to the audience. So we thought in terms of coming up with a song that would ultimately do that. And we came up with what we wanted to do with the song I Thank You, and that's what we wrote it for. And it ended up being a major, major record. Yeah. So much success with the tours and everything until it was becoming very, very difficult for us to replicate what we knew could be more success for them based on taking the time and having the time to put the processes together in effective ways for it.
0: Well, as we move toward the close of the 1960s and the start of the 1970s, we see you and Isaac landing on the charts with My Baby Specializes by William Bell and Judy Clay, Sweet Her Is by the Soul Children, Wrap It Up by Archie Bell, several songs by The Emotions, including The Best Part of a Love Affair, Stealing Love, and and Show Me How. But at the same time, Isaac's solo career began to take off and by the early 70s he was a a major star and you guys eventually parted ways um and i'm curious if that partnership just kind of drifted over time as as times changed and and his career began to take off or or was there a a conscious decision to dissolve the partnership and and break from each other
3: there have been several stories about Haitian porter breaking up. Supposedly, uh, I've heard. You know, there was a a, a little play uh, that they were trying to shop uh, the stack story that they had someone threatening me to, to to break up with Isaac. I mean, that <laughs> stuff was the furthest thing from the truth. When Isaac started having some success, we both talked, and I said, and and he he just said, "Man, I'm going to go at it." I said, "You should go and and and, and do this." Brother, make this money because it was during a time where he recorded a record that was 19 minutes long and he was getting exposure for it and appreciation for it where he was ultimately had the chance that changed the entire culture of music at that time. And so I was encouraging him to take advantage of that. And he was very, very supportive of me doing whatever I needed to do because that's why when he started to take advantage of that, I also embarked upon recording an album of my own. And if you'll notice, the first album that I recorded in the apex of his career, when he was really smoking hot, was Gritty, Groovy, and Getting It, which was an album that was produced by Isaac Hayes. Right. So... I mean, we were never, ever uh, apart in a negative way. It just made sense for him to do what he did. I kept producing. I kept also handling the production responsibilities of four or five labels for the company, encouraging people to do what they needed to do on their product. And I did that until Stacks closed. And Isaac had the career that he had, and he took advantage of it. But we were never, never, ever in a bitterness or anything such as that. Hmm, And I I was the closest person in his life up until his passing.
1: Well, and even after the two of you kind of, uh, you know, took separate paths professionally, you know, you, you continued, you were working with the Soul Children and the Emotions, and as you mentioned, you returned to recording, uh, landing a Top 30 R&B hit with a remake of Can't See You And I Want To, uh, and recording a handful of albums, you know, you had 1973's ambitious concept record, Victim of the Joke. Right. And then in that era, you found a new partner in Ronnie Williams. Um, and, and I've seen you say before that Ronnie, you know, wasn't quite the same fit in the way that Isaac was. Talk about that whole period and how you kind of dealt with keeping your creative spark alive during a time where there were just tons of changes going on all around you.
3: You know, sometimes when you get getting stories put out there in books and whatever, some people really twist up some things. And so there were some quotes put in a book that Rob Bowman wrote that were very upsetting to me and saying that, that uh, I had this uh, awful feeling about Ronnie Williams. Uh, Ronnie Williams was a great contributor in, in his special ways for what I was doing. Certainly, he was not Isaac Hayes, and, and, and very, who could be? But, but uh, Ronnie made some meaningful contributions to our, our working relationships, and I appreciated that. Uh, but it, it, it was challenging for me during that period because I had lost my mother, and I was going through some, some heavy kind of situations uh, that were quite challenging. And so uh, I was compromised to some extent as well. I was also was handling some of the responsibilities of encouraging other artists to work and, and create their material as well, write and produce and, and all of that. So it was, it was a combination of several things that, that, that hurt the situation uh, to some extent. But when you consider that during the time uh, after Isaac and I were n- no longer had the time to work together like we had, uh, during that time, some of the most, my most powerful music was created. You mentioned the Victim of a Joke record. The samples that are on the on that record are off the roof. Which, 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 from Biggie, Notorious B.I.G. to, I mean, the names, the list is so long. The amount of samples on it. That, uh, this is. R- with Ronnie Williams and I, there was a song called "Blind Alley," which is one of the greatest uh, so- a song that I did my- by myself. That was the the core for "Dream Love" on M- Mariah Carey. Just getting jiggy with it on Will Smith. I mean, some of the greatest material of my career that ended up being great sample records happened after Isaac was doing what he was doing and I was doing what I was doing.
2: Look at, I want all the girls one more time to do your thing. Come on, girl. <laughs> yeah, it sounds so good. I want all the boys to do your thing. Yeah, no <laughs> louder than that. <laughs> getting jiggy with it. <laughs>
3: And the the experience of all of that speaks to not only the credibility of Isaac, but but the fortunateness of the career that I've had as well. And so I think everybody that I was associated with in that regard, including Ronnie Williams.
1: Well, you know... Earlier, we mentioned some of the successes that you had on the country charts, but your classic songs have remained alive on the pop, rock, and adult contemporary charts as well. I mean, just a few examples would be, you know, the Blues Brothers revival of Soul Man in 1978. Um, We just talked about the ZZ Top cover of I Thank You from 1980. Uh, The fabulous Thunderbirds take on Wrap It Up in 86. Right. And then Linda Ronstadt and Aaron Neville's memorable duet of When Something Is Wrong With My Baby. Yeah. Um, Did it surprise you in the late 70s and early 80s when your songs, you know, kind of started showing up again and and, and being regarded as not just hits, but standards that would live on in different forms for many years.
3: Well, Paul, I will tell you, you know, to say that it didn't surprise me would be a joke. (laughs) Uh, it, 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 It did surprise me, but it also humbled me because the fact that you think you've done something that has some merit to it, and when you see evidence of it, it just simply validates that you did. And so, Mm. so much of what those songs were in a personal way for me ended up being manifested in credibility ways for the legacy of of Hayes and Porter and and some of the things that I was doing on a personal level. So it it became very evident to me uh, this year, um, come November, I will be seventy-nine years old, and so to have a career that has spanned this long, and for me to be able to see on national commercials and, and all of the like of and the covers and this kind of thing, it's been an, a a really an amazing journey for me. To know that some of the songs that were created are still templates of of American culture even today is is an amazing thing. Yeah. But it speaks to what can happen. When, when you get a, an opportunity to do what you aspire to do and things line up for you.
0: As you say, you know, these songs do continue to live on. You hear them in movies, you hear them in TV, you hear them in, as you mentioned, samples. You know, we hear Jay-Z and Eminem and Justin Bieber and Snoop Dogg and all these folks still sampling songs from, from your your catalog. Yeah. Um, and, you know, looking back uh, now, there's this huge um, career of, of achievement that we look at, uh, and you've worn a lot of hats over the course of that career. You've been a performer, a songwriter, a producer, an A&R man, an executive, a a businessman, a a board member, an investor, a mentor, and, and, and on and on. Um, at, at this point in your life, um, when I'm sure you are very busy, um, it's now been nearly 60 years after your first cut, uh, what role does songwriting play in your life today? Do you still have time in your schedule to regularly sit down and, and write new songs? Well,
3: I think the greatest role that, that songwriting plays in my career, in my life today, is the fact that I've been fortunate enough to be sane after all of that journey that you just talked about. And the fact that, that I'm able to to contribute and give something to someone else as uh, some insightfulness about how they can go about their processes is what I consider what my responsibilities and what my role is and what I should be doing. I started a nonprofit called the Consortium MMT. And that is a, a a program that deals with giving insightful information to aspiring songwriters, record producers, and recording artists. And I've got about a hundred and thirty plus videos. Of, of some of everybody talking about each of those aspects. Uh, I got Valerie Simpson talking about songwriting. I got Jimmy Jam talking about producing. I got Stevie Wonder talking about recording artists. I got Maurice White with a personal book created about the overall template for all of those areas. And plus, so many artists, that if I start naming them all, it would take all day. But it's just, it's just special to be able to give something back to those that are coming behind you and knowing that you've got some information that you can give to them that could Potentially be beneficial to them. It doesn't compromise their individuality, but it gives them a perspective about the creative processes that all these greats have used in order to do what they do. And because I, in my program I say there are no new emotions, you have to find fresh ways to speak to common emotions, speak about common emotions. And when you understand that those who've had long careers in this business, that's the challenge that we've all had to face. And that's where the rubber meets the road. When you're able to, when you have to do that, and you have to find effective ways to do it, and they are processed that you can go inside of your mind to know what you'll accept or won't accept and that's that's a, some thoughts that you can give to someone who have aspirations to do this and it could be beneficial to them and so the consortium MMT program gives me an opportunity to, to do that and to give that back I have a record company Made in Memphis Entertainment as you probably know with artists and all of that and that's done very well but, the, but giving back to young people in such a way free to them it doesn't cost them anything it's it's what I feel is the greatest joy that I have right now
0: that's great and it's it's great to just see the way that that the power of music carries on you know you think about um, if Estelle Axton had not uh, let you listen to those records and given you access to information uh, or access to recordings that you might not have otherwise had the opportunity to study your, your life might've gone in a different path. And I'm sure there's a lot of musicians who have been, uh, connected with your nonprofit who might say, well, if it wasn't for David Porter who gave me access to information, um, gave me the opportunity to learn, uh, and to figure out what, uh, what the, the bedrock and the foundation is for this business, you know, their lives might've taken a different turn and it's just inspiring to hear, the stories behind these songs and to hear about your career, but then also just to see the way that it goes on and on and on from generation to generation and the people who care enough to pass that knowledge down and to encourage the next generation and give young people the opportunities. Um, So it is so inspiring for us just to have the opportunity to, to speak with you uh, during this time and, and be enriched to hear the behind the scenes is just amazing. So I cannot thank you enough for uh, spending time with us today and just sharing your story and, uh, and your insights. It's, it's truly uh, been fantastic.
3: Well, Scott, I will tell you, it's, it's really a, th- a thrill for me to know that, that you have messages that goes out to other songwriters. I certainly am not a, on a, any false pretense or illusion that uh, as, as a songwriter, I'm the only one that thinks about giving back and all that. So I don't consider myself unique in that regard. I just consider myself uh, fortunate to be a, among a member of that club that wants to do that.
0: Very cool. Well, that's great. Thank you, David, so much. And uh, I sure hope our paths will cross again soon. Thank you very much. Enjoyed
3: spending time with you guys.
1: Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice.
0: If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting our potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously.
1: You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow.
0: And if you'd like, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Songcraft
1: Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.